Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Jan. Greetings, brethren. I want to actually, if you don't mind, turn to Luke 20. I just want to begin in Luke 20. And this is, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 34. This was the confrontation that the Sadducees had with our Lord, thinking that they could mock him with the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. And they thought they could mock him with this conundrum of a wife marrying seven brothers and then trying to figure out whose wife will she be in the resurrection. And I just want to pick out something that Christ said here Beginning in verse 34, he answered them saying, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they, hopefully this is all of us, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more. The second death has no power over these, because they are equal unto the angels, and are children of God, being the children of the resurrection. I want to start here, brethren, because this is what we're aiming for, to be children of the resurrection, the first resurrection, upon whom the second death has no power. As children of God and children of the resurrection, we are, very, we are separate from men. And Paul actually upbraided the Corinthians when he said to them, you walk as men. He, he was disappointed that they walk as men. And that the way that human beings are completely separate from animals in our understanding. The children of the resurrection should be completely separate from the children of men in our understanding. There's a great gulf between what the children of God, the children of the resurrection understand, and what human beings understand, just as there's a great gulf between what human beings understand and what animals understand. So I raise that because the topic that I want to cover today, it's a bit heavy. It has to do with the children of this world. The focus is not on us, but we need to understand that we're up above this. We are children of the resurrection. And we need to see the world and what's happening in the world through God's eyes. And the way that we do that is to look at the world through the lens of the Bible. So everything that's happening around us, we view it through the lens of the Bible in order to see it from God's perspective. Next month, on December 10 and 11, our world is going to enter into a very new and a very dangerous phase. So after December 11, next month, it's going to be a very different world. And the reason for that, and it hasn't gotten a lot of media attention, is this uh, global compact that the world's nations will sign. There's probably a half a dozen nations that have said they will not sign it, one of which being America. Canada, in fact, has, has co-authored it. So Canada has been very much involved in co-authoring it. And I see 
My sister is very much aware of this. Not, not a lot of people are. It's called the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. So there's going to be this global agreement that all the nations of the world are, are expected to sign. And the objective is for safe, orderly, and regular migration. And if you read it, you can, you can Google it and get it online. But uh, in a nutshell, all the nations of the world, except for a handful, Poland being one that has said they will not sign it, Hungary will not sign it, I believe Australia will not sign it, I mentioned America and some of the Czech uh, nations. Austria, Israel, of course, yes. So there's a handful of nations that are not going to sign it. In a nutshell, what it says is all that we're seeing here with the migration crisis, that all the nations need to support this migration, that nations will no longer have boundaries. And it is our obligation to ensure that anybody anywhere that wants to migrate anywhere, we must bear the burden of the cost of making sure they get to their host nation safely. And when they arrive at the host nation, we must bear the cost of making sure that they're fed, watered, looked after. Now, obviously, people wanting a better life is a good thing. And some of these people live in horrible nations. So the idea that they want to move from where they live and under the despotic governments they live under to have a better life for them and their family Nobody can say there's anything wrong with that. But that does not give them the right to just get up and go to another nation and say, you must look after all of my needs. And that's what this global compact is going to do. It's going to make, the, it's going to make migration a human right, that they will have the right to migrate. So what? Why should we care? Let's begin in Deuteronomy 32 to see that this initiative of the United Nations opposes God's will. That's the first thing. It opposes God's will. Here in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 7, Moses writes to Israel, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. Look at this, verse 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. So this idea that nations should not exist, that they should not have borders, that borders should not be enforced, that everybody should be free to go anywhere and no nation has the right to resist it, it runs counter to the Most High. It is God himself who divided to the nations their inheritance. So he gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam. Oh, we can't have separation. That's bigoted. The Most High separated the sons of Adam. He set the boundaries of the people. And, and what's really interesting here, and we'll, we'll come back to this, is he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of Beni Israel, of the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Israel, that's, how, that's the math that God used to divide the nations their portion. Why? 
because the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. In other words, God has given land to all the nations, and that's their inheritance. He wants them to own it. He wants them to possess it. But he did that according to the tribes of Israel. Why? Because Israel is his possession. Israel is to be the head nation, to be the, king, the, the kingdom of priests, so that the nations can have a relationship with the Most High through his possession, which is Israel. Satan, obviously, is running counter and working against this. So when you look at this global compact that the nations are going to sign next month, which, which means that everybody will be obligated to assist with migration. There should be no resistance to migration. You combine that with the growth of socialism in the Western nations. All the young people today, because they're not taught history, if, if they don't have a Christian background, they want socialism. Capitalism is a horrible thing. It's a great evil, even though it has created the greatest nation, the greatest empires that the world has ever seen in very short time as well, with the most freedom and the most, uh, most, uh, lifting the most people out of poverty ever. Not to say it's perfect. It's not. It can't be. It's not of God. But it's the best that mankind has done. When you combine migration, global migration, as a human right, with the fact that the Western nations are adopting socialism, it, it means that uh, these are welfare states, and that whoever comes into our countries must be given welfare. This means all the migration is going to be one way. And we have data now. If you look at uh, Holland, they have data that shows it's costing taxpayers a million dollars per migrant. That when they come, they are not productive. They collect. And taxpayers must generate a million dollars to finance what they need. In Germany, they've calculated that it takes 12 taxpayers to pay for all the benefits of one migrant. So this global migration is going to result in economic collapse. That we're thinking, you know, we're wealthy, we're, we have abundance, let's let everybody in. What happens when everybody comes in and the economy collapses? Is everybody going to be... And, and these are tribes that we don't understand each other, we don't have the same value systems, and now there's not enough food for anybody. What happens then? Combine that with the passing of blasphemy laws, where more and more Western nations are buying into this notion that you can't criticize religion or you can't criticize religious persons. And we know what that means because we've been denigrating Jesus Christ for decades and decades. But now all of a sudden it's wrong to denigrate religious personalities. When you put all of this together, what it means is the guaranteed success of Islam in Western nations, which means the guaranteed success of Islam globally. What does that mean? How do we view this through the lens of the Bible? Turn to Matthew 24. A, a pivotal text for the end time. <clears throat> all of this is happening and we need to be aware what is going on 
Matthew 24 and verse 7, Christ tells us that nation shall rise against nation. And, and, and coming out of a sort of an industrial era, we think of one nation going to war against another. The text actually says tribe against tribe, ethnic group against ethnic group. So that can happen nation against nation, but it can also happen inside a nation that there are different tribes that don't understand each other, that are living shoulder to shoulder and hate each other. And so there's tribe, tribalism and tribal war within nations, not just across nations, and kingdom against kingdom. And notice this, there shall be famines. So this is economic collapse. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. I mean, when you look at a, a nation as sophisticated as Canada, or America, or Britain, or Germany. How could there be pestilences in these nations? We're very advanced. We've gotten rid of all of this. Well, many Western nations are now seeing a resurgence of many diseases that they thought were history. A federal epidemiologist in Germany has noted a dramatic increase in the following diseases since opening their doors to mass migration. Adenoviral, adenoviral conjunctivitis, botulism, chickenpox, cholera, cryptosporidiosis, dengue fever, echinococcosis, enterohemorrhagic E. coli, geodiarsis, I can't even pronounce some of these, hemophilus influenza, hantavirus, hepatitis, hemorrhagic fever, HIV AIDS, leprosy, Laus-Born relapsing fever, malaria, measles, meningococcal disease, meningo, men, meningoencephalitis, mumps, paratyphoid, rubella, shigellosis, syphilis, toxoplasmosis, trichinellosis, tuberculosis, tularemia, typhus, and whooping cough. This is Germany. And since this whole mass migration must let everybody in, coming with it are all of these diseases. It used to be that to come into a country like Canada, you had to be tested. You know, make sure that you have all your vaccinations, you're not carrying any of these diseases, because the country looked after its citizens. And we couldn't afford for these diseases to come in. Now we don't check anything. People are just allowed to come in, and we can't blame them if they're looking for a better life. It's the government's fault. There should be some checks and balances. Do you, do you believe in the equality of women? Do you think it's your right to subjugate women? Is it okay to mutilate their genitals? If you believe that, you can't come here. Are you carrying any diseases? Well, you can, no, now it's a human right for them to go anywhere, and we must finance it. And if they're at sea and in trouble, we must not spare any cost to go and rescue them and bring them safely to our countries. That's what this global compact is all about. God tells us there's going to be this incredible crime wave as well. There's going to be chaos in our countries, and our countries are going to collapse. So what do all these developments have to do with the Bible? How do we, how do we understand this? I want to show, brethren, that this is all preparatory to the fulfillment of prophecy, and that this is going to give the nations the upper hand and that this is God's will. And we need to understand it. We cannot fear it. 
Because we do not walk as men. We walk as children of God. And we just need to understand what is unfolding. When everybody's confused around us, we need to be crystal clear. What is happening and why? So I first want to identify who the nations are and what is their problem? What is it that they need to be healed of? Because ultimately the nations are healed. Of what? So who are they? What do they need to be healed of? The violence, to show that the violence that they will engage in is God's work. That is part of God's work. He's the one orchestrating and allowing this. And then to show ultimately how the nations will be healed. In all of this, I hope it's crystal clear to us that the ideology that is going to empower the nations cannot be anything other than Islam. That we, we, we cannot be sleepwalking. This is happening right under our noses, all around the world. We cannot ignore it. It is actually part of the work of God. So, who are the nations? Let's go to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, and verse 5. This is what God says to the tribes of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my, voice, and, my, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So this verse tells us who the nations are, that the tribes of Israel are to be set above everyone else. The nations are everybody who's not an Israelite. So God has a plan for Israel, and he has a plan for the nations. Israel is his inheritance. He's going to own Israel forever, and the nations will have their inheritance. But God's inheritance is Israel. And this is so unfair. Are you telling me if I'm not an Israelite that these people are going to be above me? Well, that's just so unfair. Take it up with God. God has every right to do what he's doing. And everything he does, he does for the benefit and the blessing of mankind. But this is the issue. That the nations are below Israel by God's design. And that juxtaposition creates resentment. And that's okay. Fine. As long as Israel is faithful. Because as long as Israel is faithful, God will back them up. The minute they're not faithful, God will withdraw from them. And that resentment and that envy of the nations will be turned against them. So when we say the nations, we mean non-Israelite, but we also mean that they have an, an embedded hostility toward Israel. The nations have anger, envy, and hatred toward Israel because of this unfair, unfair treatment. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4. And beginning in verse 6, Moses writes to Israel as they're about to go into the promised land, Keep therefore and do them, speaking of the commandments, 
for this is your wisdom and your understanding. And Deacon Jan gave a great sermon on knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, parts one and two. And so this is the wisdom and understanding of Israel. Where? In the sight of the nations. I'm going to put you above these people. And as long as you keep my commandments, and that's your understanding and your wisdom, the nations are going to be in awe of you because of your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So the, the acceptance of their superiority, or oh, did I offend anybody? By saying Israel is superior? I'm, I'm just reading the text. The acceptance of Israel's superiority over the rest of mankind lies in their observance of the statutes. He says, For what nation is there so great who has God so near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day. So by, by um, observing these laws, which are God's laws, very well thought out, the nation would prosper. The nation would just be dignified. And all the other nations would accept their superiority and come to them to learn of God. So... These nations now, they have identity. They, they have a source. They have an origin. And we need to understand that to better understand how their hatred came about. Why they hate Israel so much. And why that hatred is perpetual. Let's, so everything we have, to, we have to begin it in Genesis, trace it all the way through, and see how it's, how it's resolved in Revelation. So when we speak of the healing of the nations in Revelation, that's the resolution to a problem that began in Genesis. So let's go to Genesis, and let's go to Genesis 10. <clears throat> in Genesis 10, this is after the flood, which is really the origin of the nations. So Noah comes uh, off the ark with his family, and then the nations come out of his three sons. And Moses helps us understand how these tribes come about, what their genealogies are. But we fast forward to verse 8. We see that Cush begat Nim, Nimrod. And this is such a significant verse. Moses is telling us, this is the guy. So as the nations or the tribes are establishing themselves in the earth, this is the guy. This is the guy who had ideas, had a philosophy, had an ideology, that the rest of the tribes adopted. They were either subjected to it, well, they were subjected to it, but also it was intriguing to them. And so he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. So the same way we would say that David was a great shepherd, but he was a shepherd of people. Well, this is a mighty hunter, but he's a hunter of people. He's a mighty hunter against the Lord. He has the opposite agenda to God's. Therefore, it's said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So this is where it started. So the ideology began in Babel. And Iraq, and Akkad, and Kalna, 
in the land of Shinar, so what we would call Iraq today. Out of that land went forth Asher. So we see the tribe of Asher learned from Babylon or learned from uh, Nimrod. And so he took that learning and he went and built Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So these great um, endeavors and city building, it all comes from Babel and what they learned in Babel, Babel being the um, opposite to Jerusalem. So Satan says he'll be like the Most High. God has Jerusalem. God has a Messiah. Satan's doing the same thing. He's got Babylon, and he's got Nimrod. But notice in verse 13 as well, we see Mizraim in verse 13. So Mizraim is learning from Nimrod as well. Mizraim being Egypt. And then they go on and mention other nations. Fast forward now to chapter 11, where we see the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. So next month, when this global compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration is signed, the objective is Genesis 11, verse 1. That the whole earth shares the same ideology, and ideally the same language. That there'll be, there'll be a, a high language, a language that everybody needs to learn, because that will be the prevailing language. But certainly there'll be an ideology that the whole earth must be subjected to. So we're going to take people with that ideology, and we're going to export them to all nations and then use them to bring those nations down because the, the migration goes one way. Unless after December 11th, some of you in this room are just dying to move to Somalia or Eritrea or Sudan. I don't see any hands up. I'm sure we could arrange it for you. All the migration is going to go one way. We have been blessed to be born in these Western nations which, at their root, have Judeo-Christian principles. And although they've turned from God, the Judeo-Christian principles have created this prosperity. And so the objective of the compact for this global migration is Genesis 11, verse 1. We want globalism. We want the whole earth to share our ideology. And so it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Again, this land is critical. It's Satan's land. Or it's what Satan is trying to set up as his land. And they dwelt there. And they said to each other, let's make brick. Let's, let's use our best technology to make this a permanent building and, 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 and project. And they said, we're going to build a city. So this is where the, the, the nation building begins. The, this concept of, that Nimrod had as to how to build a city with a religious uh, influence over it to justify it. And they feared lest they be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So they wanted to, back then to be all together was their way to ensure their control over everybody. Today we don't have to be all together. We have technology. So they can, in fact, scatter people around the world, but still control them. So it's the same agenda, it's the same thinking, it's the same plan. So the Lord comes down and he looks. And verse 6, he says, Behold, the people are one. This, this was not something that excited God. This is something that concerned him. So when all the nations come together, and sign an agreement to say, yeah, we all agree. This, this is how we should move as, as globally, all nations. 
This is not something that God looks at favorably because of the imagination of man. And so here he says, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. Moses says, you know, the beginning of his kingdom was, was Babel. This is what they begin to do. It's going to spread from here. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. The imagination is, is stimulated by the devil, and his imagination is to be like the Most High. That means wiping out all of the Most High's children. And so when he says nothing will be restrained from them, they have a violent appetite. They're going to seek out and destroy God's children. And that would negate God's promise to send a redeemer. So God has to preserve the godly line so that he can send a redeemer. Satan needs to work against that. And so Satan is always working to destroy God's people so that God cannot fulfill his promises. And that's what God sees here, that if they have the upper hand, he will not be able to fulfill his promise in Israel. So he responds, let's go down and confuse their language so they cannot cooperate with each other. And now we come to the end time where they can cooperate with each other, and God is allowing it. And that means that there will be a significant persecution of God's people because their imagination will be stimulated by the devil. So we need to understand how do they come together in the end time and what will be their collective ideology? Because that was God's concern, that they all shared the same ideology. And so they would have the same agenda, the same objectives. Let's see how this unpacks, beginning in Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, and we'll break in at verse 8, we are privy to the story of Abraham realizing this promise that God made in him, and but not having any children with his wife. And so his wife came up with the idea, well, why don't you go into my handmaid and have a child through her, and that child will be your seed. And so here now, Sarah expels Hagar and her son, Ishmael. In verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. The child is Isaac. So finally they have the child of promise. And he grew and he was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. So this is just a wonderful thing. He's the promise, the child of promise, and they're celebrating. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. So Moses is very clear. He wants us to understand this is the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham mocking. So that word mocking is a very laden word, but let's say, let's say at a minimum, let's say it's persecuting. So this is the promised child. Everybody's celebrating the child, but Sarah caught Ishmael persecuting the child. This is the root of today's problems that the cultures that spring from Ishmael are rooted in this hatred of Isaac. And the whole world today needs to be seen through this lens. You're either on the Isaac agenda or you're on the Ishmaelite agenda. 
and the Ishmaelite agenda will become global. And the children of Isaac will be targeted because this is the mind of Satan, to interrupt and interfere with the plan of God. Back at Babel, God interrupted and interfered with Satan's plan. But in the end time, God is going to allow Satan's plan to unfold. So she saw him persecuting Isaac. Therefore, she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman. If it was just a little mocking, they were just playing, she wouldn't have such a strong reaction. She saw Ishmael's hatred and envy and resentment towards Isaac. And she says, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. No way. In verse 13, God comforts um, Abraham to say that also the son of this bondwoman, the son of the Egyptian, will I make a nation. So a nation is going to come from this. Why? Because he's your seed. Then in verse 16, she went and sat over against a good way off, about a bow shot away. So she takes the child and leaves him to die. For she said, I don't want to see the death of my child. So you could imagine how traumatic an experience this is for a small child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. So the child, as far as she's concerned, the child is death, uh, is dead and is going to die a slow, agonizing death. And she is bewailing her fate because of this. No doubt this would have a very traumatic impact on the psyche of Ishmael. But in verse 18, God says, Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. So this great nation means it's going to have great influence in the world. Certainly in that part of the world, it's going to be, have, have the upper hand. And people are going to look up to this nation. And it's a nation that begins with trauma, with psychological trauma. And it's a nation that begins with resentment, that they were cast out. As long as Israel, or we could say the descendants of Isaac, obey God and keep his statutes, the resentment and the hatred is not a problem. Because Israel will always have the upper hand. When Israel turns their back on God, now we have built into the psyche of this tribe a perpetual hatred for Isaac. And so this is a a people that God can use very easily to destroy the descendants of Isaac because it's built into their culture. You, You know, there's a saying, people die, ideas don't. So whatever ideas I have in my head, at some point I'm going to be six feet under. But if I'm effective in passing on these ideas to my descendants, they will carry them on. And so this is why you see certain cultures just have hatred for other cultures. And yet, this has been something that's been going on for hundreds of years. Because human beings come and go, but ideas remain. And some of these ideas are thousands of years old, and they're governing the globe today. In verse 21 we see an expression of this resentment. He says he dwelt in the wilderness or in the desert of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So it's a complete disrespect for Abraham. 
and certainly a, a hatred of Sarah and what Sarah did to her. So she goes back to her people. And so Ishmael and Egypt are connected. And so we can draw a straight line now from Nimrod to Mizraim, Egypt, to Ishmael. Ideas don't die. And so all of the ideas of nation building that Nimrod implemented in Babel, that the people then spread out. Well, Mizraim built a nation, an empire that lasted 3,000 years based on those concepts and ideas. And now Ishmael is going to become a great nation, borrowing from these same concepts and ideas and false religious thinking. But now we begin to see the root of the conflict between the nations and Israel, the descend of the covenant people. So that's at Isaac and, and Ishmael level. This, this Ishmaelites are going to become a great nation. Built into their culture is hatred for Isaac. Then we come down to the next level, which is Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis 28... So again, when we're talking about the healing, what do they need to be healed of? They need to be healed of this envy and hatred. And where did, where did it start? We're seeing in Genesis where it began. And it's perpetual. So here in Genesis 28 and verse 6, there's a hatred now between Esau and Jacob because Jacob felt that Esau robbed him of his birthright. But here in verse 6 of Genesis 28, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take him a wife from there. So, so uh, Jacob is um, being blessed by Isaac now, and Isaac's giving him very specific instructions as to where to go to get a wife. And that, he, that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. So, don't do this. And it was like a real strict command. So Esau oversaw this and heard this. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and, has, and was gone to Padan Aram. Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan did not please Isaac his father, and he was close to his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael. So he goes to Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So I, uh, Esau is like, you know, I'm not going to go to Canaan because my, my, my father told my brother, don't touch those women. So I'm going to get a woman. I'm not going to go to Padan Aram either because Jacob's gone there. But I'm going to take a woman that's from the line of Abraham. And so he goes to Ishmael and he marries Mahalath to be his wife. So what we see now, again, in the origin of the nations, is Esau, that has a hatred for Jacob, joining forces with Ishmael, that has a hatred for Isaac. And the, the people that come out of them, come out of this culture that has a perpetual hatred now, that feels hard done by. We were ripped off. This, the, the promise is rightfully ours, because we're the firstborn. But it was taken away from us. And so the children, the ch grandchildren, the next generation, you, you see in the Middle East today, if you go to uh, the Palestinians, the children can hardly speak. 
and they hate Israel. And then they grow up and become adults, and then they have children, and it's just perpetual. So that's what we see starting here, a hatred that's going to be passed down from generation to generation. Let's go now to um, Ezekiel. Fast forward to Ezekiel to see this hatred that begins with Esau and Jacob, how does it end? Does, does somewhere along the line, as we get sophisticated, here we are in 2018, do we all sort of mature and say, you know, it's good to love everybody. You know, let bygones be bygones. Let's bury the hatchet and let's just all hug each other and sing Kumbaya. Is that what happens? Look at Ezekiel 35. Ezekiel 35 and verse 3. God is now prophesying unto Mount Seir. Mount Seir is Edom. It's Esau. And say unto it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, this is Esau, Esau's descendants, I am against you. God says he's against Edom. And I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you most desolate. Oh, wait a minute. I thought all religions are equal. I thought all cultures are equal. I thought all people are equal. And God is saying he's against Edom. So this is a problem. How do, we, how, do, how do we reconcile this? And not only that he's against Edom or Esau, but that he will make Esau most desolate. This is prophecy for the future. You do not mess with God and his word. And Esau messed with God and his word. God made a promise, and Esau despised it. And so it went to Jacob. And God says now, he despises Esau. And he plans, Esau has plans to be great, and and will become great. But God says he's going to make Esau most desolate. Esau wants to make Isaac most desolate. But God is going to make Esau most desolate. I will lay your cities waste. So Esau will have cities, and you shall be desolate. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So Esau thinks somebody else is the Lord. But God is going to make sure that Esau knows that he is the Lord. Because you have had a perpetual hatred. We're going back thousands of years to the founder of these people. And that hatred never leaves. It's handed down from one generation. It's right in their psyche. It's It's in the DNA now. This is, where, this is why the nations need to be healed. You've had a perpetual hatred, and you have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword. This is Islam. Esau is Islamic. And he, and, and he has, has this perpetual hatred that is justified by Islam. And he takes the sword and as the agenda all the way back to Nimrod is to destroy the covenant people. So he he has shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity. So there's a time of their calamity, and these Muslims think, this: we got the upper hand, let's go, slaughter them all, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, and we know God lives eternally, says the Lord God, I will prepare you unto blood, and blood shall pursue you. If you have not hated blood, even blood shall pursue you. 
Thus will I make Mount Seir, or Esau, most desolate. This is what I'm going to do. And cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men. In your hills and in your valleys and in all your rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. So the revelation says, he that lives by the sword must die by the sword. And so this is what God is going to do. I will make you perpetual desolations. So there's nothing Esau can do to build up. God is going to tear Esau down forever. And your cities shall not return. Unlike Jerusalem, which last week we we talked about that, Jerusalem will be desolate, but it will return. It will be built up again. Not so with Esau. And you shall know that I am the Lord. My covenant is with Isaac. My covenant is with Jacob. Because you have said, listen to what Esau says. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine. And we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. Remember God said, Israel is mine. So God divided the nations and gave them their inheritance. But he said, Israel is my inheritance. The house of Israel and the house of Judah belong to God forever. But Esau said, it's ours, and we will possess it. Therefore, verse 11, as I live, says the Lord God, I will even do according to your anger and according to your envy. This is what the nations need to be healed of, anger and envy. And God has said, I'm going to do according to your anger and according to your envy, which you had used out of your hatred against them. So we see here anger, envy, and hatred. And it's perpetual. And it's a sickness that is in these nations from their root, from their root, and it's perpetual. And this is what they need to be healed of. So God says that I'm going to do, so what you thought you would do to Israel, I'm going to have done to you. I will do according to your anger and according to your envy, which you have used out of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, there's this controversy over who is God. Esau claims that his God is God, and God says to Esau, you will know that I am the Lord, and that I have heard all of your blasphemies, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel. So God uh, considers Esau's ideology as blasphemy. What do we think? Do we think Esau's ideology is okay? It's okay to denigrate Jesus Christ? Or do we see it the way God sees it, as blasphemy? You shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have heard all your blasphemies. So they think that God can't hear, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate. They are given to us to consume. So again, this, this compact of global migration, it's going to change the whole world order. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. They believe they have the upper hand. It's going to be laid desolate. The abomination of desolation is going to be set up, and they believe It's all justified. They are given to us to destroy. Our God has given the land to us to destroy. Thus with your mouth, you have boasted against me. So it's a very very proud ideology, something that they feel that everyone else has to submit to them and they have the upper hand. With your mouth, you have boasted against me and you have multiplied your words against me and I have heard them. Thus says the Lord God, When the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. 
So the whole earth will be of one language, there'll be an acknowledged language, and of one ideology. And when Jerusalem goes down, whole earth is going to rejoice. And God says, that's when he's going to act. When the whole earth rejoices, I'm going to make you desolate. So we see that this perpetual hatred goes right up until the return of Jesus Christ. It starts with Esau, but it doesn't end until Christ returns. As you did rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel. So the focus, what's happening in the world, if we're going to see things the way God sees them, has everything to do with the land promised to Israel. That's God's focus. And if we're going to understand what's happening in the world, we have to have the same focus as God. If we think the focus of of God is Canada, we're not going to understand what's going on. Canada is not God's focus. The Middle East is where God is focused. So you rejoiced at the inheritance of the house of Israel. So God gave that land to Israel because it was desolate. So will I do unto you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, even all of it. God hates it all. And they shall know that I am the Lord. So in the mouth of two witnesses, every word will be confirmed. Let's go to Malachi to confirm what Ezekiel just showed us. Malachi 1. In Malachi 1, the burden, verse 1, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have you loved us? Here's the answer. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. So there's this controversy where uh, Israel at this time is in uh, destitution. They're in, they're, in, they're in straits. They're in a de- terrible way. And they don't believe that God loves them. And God is trying to reassure them, I do love you. And they say, well, how have you loved us? And the answer is, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? And I loved Jacob. That's the answer. We can't understand this unless we understand covenant. That God is in covenant love with Jacob. And when God covenants, that's it. That's it. God is covenanted. The the covenant was supposed to be Esau's, but Esau despised it. And Jacob fought for it. So the covenant went to Jacob. And so God says, how have I loved you? I've covenanted with Jacob. And Esau has nothing to do with me. Yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau. This is covenant hate. I've washed my hands of Esau. I have n- so the answer is, I'm in covenant with you. And I've got nothing to do with Esau. And I hated Esau. And I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Esau will be a great power in the end time. But don't be fooled. God is going to destroy Esau. Whereas, Edom says, verse 4, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. 
We, we sang ancient words today. These are ancient words. I can't change this. All I can do is read it and say this is what's going on in the world. That Esau wants the upper hand. Esau wants to prove that they are the people, that he has the right to the covenant. He's the firstborn. And God says, let him talk all he wants. I've cut him off. And he's going to be known as the border of wickedness forever. And anybody who's in Esau needs healing, needs to repent, needs to come out of Esau and into Israel. Because God, the covenant, is with Israel. So we see Esau right up at the end time persecuting Israel. Who else is involved in the persecution of the people of the covenant in the end? Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and verse 10. And in that day, that's the end time, so we want to see what's going on at the end. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign or an emblem or a standard or a flag of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, or the nations. So the nations are non-Israelites. So at this time when Christ returns, the Gentiles will acknowledge where God is, and they will seek And his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. So this is the second exodus. So the first exodus was from Egypt. The second exodus is from all over. But let's read it in detail. He's going to, the second time, recover the remnant. Because the, the, the target of the devil are these people. The perpetual hatred is against these people. So they're going to be slaughtered wholesale. So again, we are children of the, of the first resurrection. We have to be up on God's level looking at, looking at human affairs. And among humans, there's this perpetual hatred between the people of the covenant and those who despise them. And those who despise them are going to slaughter them wholesale, but there's going to be a, rem, a remnant. That they can't, just as God interrupted Babel and Nimrod, he's going to interrupt them in the end time as well. Because Satan wants to destroy these people completely so that God cannot fulfill his promise. And God will always make sure that there's a remnant so that he can fulfill his promise in these human beings. So he's going to recover these human beings, which shall be left from Assyria. So now he's naming the nations. So Assyria today we call Turkey part of Iraq, part of Syria. So this, well, what you, the, the power you see Erdogan, Recep Erdogan coming up with, he represents Assyria. And so the people are going to be gathered from Assyria and from Egypt. Right here, right here, he tells us, king of the north, king of the south. So Israel is, Jerusalem is in the middle, Assyria is north, Egypt is south. And from Pathros, this is Upper Egypt. So Egypt, what we call Egypt, and Pathros, it's all, it's all Mizraim. And from Cush, this is uh, Ethiopia and Sudan. From Elam, what we call Iran today. And from Shinar, Iraq. And from Hamath, what we call Syria today. And from the islands of the sea. So all of these lands are in the Middle East. 
And they're all, if we know geography and we know where Jerusalem is, they're all surrounding Jerusalem. And they're all having to do with the promised land. The land from, from uh, the Nile River to the Euphrates River that God promised Abraham to give to his seed. There's a contention for that land among these people. These are, these are, so we can say the nations are the whole, everybody who's not Israelite. But more specifically, it's these head nations that envy and hate Israel. And their ideology will influence the rest of the world. So they're, they're going to have the upper hand. So the world has to change in such a way. That's why Christ says, in the end time, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Because there's this reconfiguration of world influence and world power. So we've, we, we have, all of us, we have only known uh, Western hegemony. We've only known American hegemony. This is going to change. And it's going to change fast. And these nations are going to be having, enjoying the upper hand. And I sense from this, I, I don't know, but when I read the islands of the sea, um, I sense from this that this is Britain. That Britain will be entirely Islamic and will join in with all of this. But I don't know, that's speculation. You could also say the coastland. So uh, Judah is right up against the coast, and so the other side of the sea, any of those nations. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Judah remained in covenant with God, but God has not forgotten Israel. And so the, the descendants of Israel, God is still numbering them and monitoring them, and he will gather them as well. So, if we just go back to Deuteronomy 11 for a moment, go back to Deuteronomy 11. For us to understand these prophecies, we have to understand geography. If we don't understand geography, then we can make stuff up, right? We can start to speak allegorically. And we can make all kinds of things about who Assyria is and who Egypt is. But if we just know geography and how God from Genesis names these nations... So the Assyrians are the children of Asher. And Asher learned his system of government, even though he's from the tribe of Shem, he learned his system of government from Nimrod. And he established his nation using that system, and it became a very ruthless and powerful system, the empire of Assyria, using these Nimrod strategies and tactics. But this is how God names these people. So I could call um, Toronto, let's say I take over Toronto, and I don't like the name Toronto anymore. I think it should be called Adrianopolis. So I'm going to change the name of the city of Toronto to Adrianopolis. If God prophesied something about Toronto, it would behoove you to find out what was Adrianopolis called before it was called Toronto so that you can reconcile what God is saying about Toronto with reality, not with what I call it. So we have to go back to these nations, to Genesis, and say, who are these people? And where are they? And then call them by what God calls them. So the reason these nations matter in Isaiah, and that we can't make up identities for them, we just have to acknowledge who they are, 
is because of Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 10. He says, for the land, he's speaking about the promised land, where you go in to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from where you came out. So in the land of Egypt, uh, the reason Egypt became a great nation was because of the Nile River. So all these original um, empires, they were built up either near the Nile or near near the Euphrates uh, or the Tigris. They needed irrigation. So the people would be attracted to the rivers, and that way they could build their empires that way. So Egypt is built upon Nile. And he says, I'm giving you the land. It's not like Egypt from where you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs. So there was some sort of irrigation system that they had dreamed up that they could use their feet to get the water from the river into their gardens. Verse 11, but the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys. So you can't be going up hills with this irrigation system trying to water. So it's a land of hills and valleys, and it drinks water of the rain of heaven. So you don't have to worry about your irrigation. I personally will irrigate it for you from heaven. Verse 12. A land which the Lord your God cares for. Notice this. This land from the Nile to Euphrates that was promised to Abraham and to Israel, it is a land, God declares, that he cares for. That's what, that's, this, this is where God's attention is. I care about this land. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. This is the controversy. That God loves this land. He cares for this land. Israel is his inheritance. He's promised this land to Israel. And the nations hate it. And so the nations want, that's why, look at all the war in this land today. If you ever see any sort of a flyover imagery of what's going on in the land, it's, it's hell on earth because Satan is there. Because Satan knows God loves this land. Let's go back to Matthew 24 again to see where God's focus is in the end time. So, Canada... Is, in, is on God's radar as an Israelite nation, as is America, as is England and Australia. These Israelite nations, they're in the plan of God. But the land that God is focused on is not Canada. The land is not America. The land is not Britain. The land that God cares about is in the Middle East. And we saw that from Deuteronomy. Here in Matthew 24, and in verse 5, Christ says, many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. So get ready. There will be lots of people saying he's Christ. But they're going to deceive many. Why? What's the deception about? We know from other scriptures, and I'll touch on it a bit here, but the agenda, deception is the devil's. And the agenda is the destruction of the covenant people. So when people come saying he's Christ, but they're deceiving, the objective is to rally the nations to destroy the covenant people. And you shall hear of war. So, so coming out of this deception comes wars. 
and rumors of wars. So there's a reconfiguration because of this deception, because of there's an ideology that says we have Christ. Don't be troubled, because all these things must come to pass, but this is not the end. This is just the reconfiguration, the shift of, of, of power. For a nation or ethnic group shall rise against nation or ethnic group and kingdom against kingdom. So there's, there's this, it almost, um, what we should see here is the collapse of America. That as long as there's a superpower like America, the, the, the amount of power that America has, if it can use its power, it just keeps the world balanced and, and just keeps everything in order. When America is weak and cannot use her power or collapses altogether, that's when we see all of this heating up. And there shall be famines, and we read that, and pestilences, and we see now how this is coming to pass with this global migration and earthquakes in different places. All of this is the beginning of sorrows. Then they're going to deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. So as a result of this deception, they have the upper hand, and they shall kill you, and you will be hated. So it's about hatred. Deception leads to hatred. You'll be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. This is what they need to be healed of is this hatred. It's a perpetual hatred. And, and Christ is telling us in the end time, it doesn't go away. It comes to its climax in the end time. Why? Why the hatred for my namesake? Isaiah shows us he's the Holy One of Israel. Israel is his possession. Israel is his name. Israel. And so because of this, and because we are preaching the truth about Israel, and because we are tre- preaching the truth about the covenant that God has with Israel and that the land belongs to Judah, ultimately, this cre- creates incredible hatred. And so there's, it, the dispute is over the land and over who's saying, like, what is God's plan with this land? Verse 15, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in where? In Toronto, in Ottawa, maybe in Peterborough, the land and the center of the land is Jerusalem. Satan is at work, and it's all about the land. When it's, when, and so we need to read the prophecies of Daniel to understand what this is about, but there's going to be this desolation in Jerusalem, and it's going to be an abomination that's set up there because Jerusalem has lost its power. They, they could be the head nation as long as they were obedient. The minute they turn their back on God and God turns their back on them, this is it. He says, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. This is the focus. And this is where our focus should be. So if we're going to understand what is going on in the world today, we have to view it through the lens of the Bible. And when we view it through the lens of the Bible, we realize God's focus is in the Middle East and specifically on Jerusalem. But anybody now, because of this perpetual hatred that is unleashed, it's the, you know, God interrupted Nimrod. There's no interruption here. Well, there is going to be an interruption, but not yet. So this hatred, perpetual hatred, is now unleashed. It comes to its climax. It's unleashed. And if you're in this land, woe unto you. So he goes on to explain how you really have to run for your life. And then in verse 26, he says, again, the deception began with them saying that they know they have Christ, they know Christ, this is Christ. But here's the deception now in verse 26. Therefore, 
if they, the deceivers, and we, from the prophecies we know these deceivers are the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Assyrians, the Elamites, the Hamathites, if they, who now have the upper hand, shall say unto you, Behold, he's with us in the desert. We, we, we are, our headquarters, our spiritual center is in the desert, and he has come to us. He's in the desert. Do not go forth. Don't get caught up in this, because this is a perpetual hatred of the covenant people. And this is, you know, you build a city, but you have to build a tower as well. There has to be religious justification for your political power. And this is the religious justification for the political Nimrod agenda. He's in the desert. Don't go forth. He's in the Kaaba. He's in our secret chambers. Don't believe it because it's all rooted in a perpetual hatred. I was going to show you uh, that this is going to be uh, driven by Babylon, but that Babylon is, in fact, subject to Assyria. And we see that if you go to Isaiah 10, so if you, can, you can look at uh, Isaiah 47 later to see that uh, Babylon is the one who's going to be driving this, but Babylon is going to come under the control of the Assyrian. And this is where Daniel's uh, statue, that, or it's not Daniel's, Nimrod, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, the image that he saw, that image is very significant because it's all the empires that take control over Babylon. And in the end, what we see here is the Assyrian gets the upper hand. And here in Isaiah 10, verse 5, God says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. God is angry. He's furious. And Assyria is the rod he uses to unleash his anger. Upon who? He's furious with his people. He's furious with the covenant people. And he uses Assyria to destroy them. And the staff of their hand, the staff in their hand, is my indignation. So again, what we're seeing here with this global compact of migration and the nations being reconfigured, it's God's doing. It's God's doing. Because he has a controversy with the covenant people. He says here in verse 6, I'm going to send the Assyrian against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. They claim to be my people, but they're hypocrites. I'm going to send them against the people of my wrath and will, against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil. Oh, we're talking now jihad and the spoils of jihad. And they have a right to take these spoils. He's going to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. However, he doesn't think so. Neither does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. What Isaiah is saying in verse 7, or what God is saying through Isaiah in verse 7, is that the Assyrian is who God is going to use to destroy his people in the end time. And they are the, the tool that he's using. But the Assyrian doesn't think so. The Assyrian has in his mind to destroy a lot of nations and to have absolute control over all these nations. And he thinks he's doing it out of his own strength. He doesn't realize that God is actually allowing it. And in verse 24, Therefore thus says the Lord of God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, the hypocrites, the hypocritical nation, God is going to forgive them. And so this is the good news. That despite this bad news, 
we have a gospel. There's good news. Oh, my people that dwell in Zion. So again, we don't have to be confused. Where is God's focus? It's in the Middle East. And now he's speaking to the people who dwell in Zion. Do not be afraid of the Assyrian. This is the good news. You do not have to be afraid of the Assyrian. He will smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease. So God is angry. He's going to use the Assyrian to finish off his people, but not completely. There will be a remnant, but it's a very short work. It's just that his wrath is going to, uh, it's going to be intense, but it's going to be short. And my anger, so he says, uh, for yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease and my anger in their destruction. So he hints there through Isaiah that this is his work. And the very work was prophesied by Moses. And we read this last week in Deuteronomy 30. If you read uh, Deuteronomy 30, Moses tells them, you're going to go in to the land, you're going to be blessed, but then you're going to disobey. And then, so you'll, you'll enjoy all the blessings, but then all the curses that I've just outlined to you, all those curses are going to come upon you. And so the Assyrian is how God fulfills the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And then Moses says, after that, you'll be gathered. God, God is going to take you then. When you learn your lesson, he's going to bring you back to the land He's going to give you his Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be set up as the head nation. So look at Habakkuk 1 to see that this is God's work, that this is inevitable. We can't stop it. Only God can stop it. Nobody can interfere with God. And so that's what we see. What's happening in the world today is the setup of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Here in Habakkuk 1, uh, God told us in Isaiah, he's going to send, it against, send the Assyrian against a hypocritical nation. But here in Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 2, he's, Habakkuk is crying out to say, look at the hypocrisy. He's, he's saying, you won't listen. I'm, I'm crying out to you of all the evil that's done in the covenant community. Even there's violence, and you don't do anything. You will not interfere, intervene. And in verse 3, it says, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. So God's people are totally wicked and hypocritical. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and therefore wrong judgment proceeds. And then God answers and he says this to Habakkuk don't look inside the covenant community for the answer don't think that I'm going to correct this wrong from within the community instead look out among the heathen look to the nations and regard and wonder marvelously in other words we would say today if I was going to write this I would say This is going to blow your mind. That's what God is saying. This is going to blow your mind. Wonder marvelously. Why? For I, God, will work a work in your days. I'm going to do this. This is me. Which you won't believe even if I tell you. It's that way out there. 
uh, this is what I'm going to do. So here, Habakkuk, God says, it's an unbelievable work. You won't believe it, though, I'll be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians. And through Isaiah, we know that the Assyrian gains control of Babylon. But God is saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So this is what he's going to do. They're terrible and dreadful. And their judgment and their dignity proceed out of themselves. Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, we're just going to just cover this and then we'll wrap up. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah says here, and we'll just break into it at verse 18, he speaks to these enemies of Israel, and he says to them, your covenant with death shall be disannulled. So this is a people who say they love death more than life, and they've made a covenant with death. And God says he's going to disannul it, and your agreement with Hades shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down. And then he says here, uh, in verse 21, because the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. So this unbelievable work that Habakkuk saw, this strange work that Isaiah prophesies about, it's what Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 30. The strange work and the unbelievable act is that because he said in Malachi, I have covenant, I have covenant loved you. I have covenant loved you. I'm never going to forsake you. But you've forsaken me. So I'm going to raise up the nations and I'm going to allow their perpetual hatred to be utilized to punish you. And that punishment is going to be so intense that your repentance will be deep and thorough. You are thoroughly going to regret turning your back on me. And that repentance, from that place, we can now enter the new covenant. And now I can put my spirit in you. And now you can represent me. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable work. And it's a um, strange work. And in Romans 9, Romans 9 verse 25, Paul refers to it as a short work. So it's an unbelievable work, it's a strange work, and it's a short work. He says here in Romans 9 verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people. I will call them my people, which were not my people. So God divorced them, but he's going to call them his people. And her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, that in that same place shall they be called the children of the living God. This is his strange work, his strange act, that he's in covenant love with these people. And although they've rejected him, he has a way of absolutely punishing them to their heart and soul, to bring them to a, a wholesale and thorough and sincere repentance so that then they can be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So we go from the sand of the sea to a remnant. That's the extent of the destruction on these people. That they cannot be numbered. And yet they're going to be slaughtered all over. 
And that's, again, this global pact and moving these people around who are subject to this ideology and therefore the sword. They're going to slaughter these people all over, but only a remnant will be saved. Why? why, why? For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. So he's going to cut it short. That's where he says in Matthew 24, unless he intervened, no flesh would be saved alive. No, because that was the agenda all the way back to Nimrod. He had to intervene then, and he's going to intervene again. But only after it gets right to the edge, and then he's going to save. So he will finish the work and cut it short in doing what is right, fulfilling his word. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. As Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah because of this hatred of the nations. So let's deal now with just the healing of the nations. Let's go to Isaiah 19. How does all of this get healed? So God is allowing this perpetual envy and hatred to be fully realized in order to punish his people and bring them down to just a remnant. And when that remnant is left, that's when he acts and restores everything and puts the world right from the remnant. And then the rest he'll actually resurrect uh, at the second resurrection. But here in Isaiah 19 then, when all of this work is done, verse 21, and the Lord shall be known to Egypt. Egypt that hated God's people, that punished, that enslaved God's people. There's coming a time, Isaiah says, that the Lord shall be known to Egypt. All of these Egyptians are going, he says, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. It it means that the Egyptians are going to declare Jesus Christ as God. And they shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yes, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. They're going to be loyal servants of God, the Egyptians. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. So God is going to allow these, allow this, these human affairs to unfold. And uh, Egypt and Ishmael are one. So the same way that Egypt influenced Ishmael, Ishmael influences Egypt. So Egypt has this perpetual hatred to uh, Jacob. And so God is going to punish Egypt for that. But then he's going to heal Egypt. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day, so not only is he going to heal Egypt, look at this. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. What we see here is the king of the north and the king of the south who hated each other and were trying to destroy each other. God says there's going to be peace. And there's going to be a highway that goes from... If the people of Egypt want to go and see the people in Assyria, there's going to be a highway that goes from Egypt to Assyria. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. So all of this hatred, it's over. And these people love God and love each other. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. So the king of the north is north of Israel. The king of the south is south of Israel. The highway will go through Israel. 
so that the Egyptians can go to the Assyrians and the Assyrians can go to the Egyptians. And here, Israel will be the third with them and will be a blessing in the middle of the land. So they can stop and worship with the Israelites and go and visit the Assyrians. There'll be a blessing. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. All the way back to what he said in Deuteronomy. Israel is his inheritance, and the nations will come to know him through his people, Israel. In chapter 25 of Isaiah, he says, In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people. Here are the nations. All the nations. He's going to make a feast of fat things. The best, the best things. The best choices pieces. A feast of wines on the lees. The best wine. Of fat things full of marrow. Of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy. This is part of the healing now. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people. So Satan has blinded the nations so that they have this envy and this hatred and this feeling that they're hard done by. And how dare these people think that they're better than us because they don't understand. But now God is going to lift this covering and they'll understand. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord will wipe away tears from, all of, from off all faces. So this hatred is all gone now. And he's going to take away the rebuke of his people. So lifting the veil from the nations that spread over the nations is what takes away the rebuke of his people. So he's going to take away the rebuke of his people from, all, from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. So the nations have this perpetual hatred because of the deception of the devil. And God now removes this deception. They finally understand that Israel is a blessing. There's nothing to be upset about. It's actually how God blesses the whole earth. And we see that in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation. We'll go to Revelation 21. But I think I read last week Revelation 20, where Satan is bound for a thousand years and the deception stops. And then as soon as he's released, the deception starts again. And immediately they try to destroy Jerusalem. So Satan is all about deception, but the deception is all about the hatred of Israel. He deceives in order to uh, energize people with the hatred toward the covenant people. And once that deception is lifted, that hatred is gone. And so now if we look at Revelation 21, we see that the new Jerusalem in verse 12 had a wall great and high. And this wall that's around the new Jerusalem had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And the names written thereon, so each of the gates has a name written on it, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And in this is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 32. When God divided the nations and gave them their inheritance, and then said that Israel is his inheritance. Israel is his possession. So that the nations can come to him through Israel. And so they're all divided according to the number of the children of Israel. So all of these nations are assigned to one of the tribes of Israel. And so now they can come and worship God through one of the gates, the one that's appropriately assigned to them, because he's divided the nations according to the children of Israel. 
which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And then in verse 24, the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Well, the only way you can get into it is through one of the 12 gates. And so you have to pick which tribe of Israel are you going to come into Jerusalem. And the gates of it will not be shut and there's no night. And verse 26, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So again, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 32, where the, the, the nations are divided according to the 12 tribes. And now they can bring their honor and their glory to Jerusalem. And in chapter 22, verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So there's this water of life, which is eternal life. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. We're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden now. The tree of life that Adam was cut off from. Now it's here again, and mankind has access to it. There was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruit. And it wouldn't surprise me of each of, if each of these fruit were named after one of the tribes of Israel. Because God will be glorified in Israel. Speculation. And yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So there's been this perpetual hatred. There has been this deception. There has been envy. And now it's all gone. We can only get into Jerusalem through one of the tribes. We're all assigned a tribe of Israel. God is glorified in Israel, and we, we glorify God. So we are happy that Israel is exalted, because Israel is the glory of God. And so this is what the healing is. The envy, the hatred, the deception, it's all gone. Let's conclude back in Isaiah, chapter 2. I think we need to understand the role of the nations. We need to understand the role of Judah and the role of the house of Israel. And I think we, also, we almost need to have a stoic approach to our lives now. Beginning next month, the world is going to take a turn. It's going to be very significant when all these nations sign that we no longer have borders and people can go wherever they want. And what we're going to see is Edom and Ishmael and Egypt and Hamath and the Assyrian and all these people spread out, fan out. And if, if we should ever go to war, it's not like World War II or World War I where this is our nation going to war against another nation. Our nation has become a collection of tribes. And if we declare war on another nation, we've got all, all those nations' tribes, they're here. And we'll collapse from inside. And the socialists have done a great job of demoralizing us. Nobody cares about us. Our, our nations are horrible. They're misog misogynistic. They're racist. They're, they're capitalistic. We have no right to exist. How horrible we are. We are happy to tear down our own nation and hand it over to these peoples. So it's going to be a difficult future on a human level. We are children of the resurrection. We can watch and observe all of this 
with a, a kind of a dispassionate view because we have God's view. We're seeing this through God's lens. We're children of the resurrection. We have eternal life. All we want to do is declare the glory of Jesus Christ, to preach the good news of this coming kingdom and, and allow things to unfold as they need to unfold because we're not of this world. We, we were looking for his appearing and eternal life and, and overseeing this whole work of God in righteousness. We conclude in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 and verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah's prophecy is about Judah and specifically Jerusalem. We have to have a sense of geography. So this is all about the Middle East. And this is what Isaiah saw. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And we saw that in these people who said they're going to build and God says they're not going to, they can try to build, I'm going to wipe it all out. And the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow unto it. This perpetual hatred and envy of Judah, and it's over. They're all going to come now. And many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We acknowledge now that there is a people that are with the Lord that are above us. We're on the God level. Jesus said the children of the resurrection are born into the family of God. We're overseeing this, that the world be set right. And human beings acknowledge that other human beings are covenanted with God. And they go to Jerusalem to learn about God. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people for their hatred and envy. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. This is where the hatred now ends. They realized they were wrong. Their God was false. So take that sword of Islam and beat it into a plowshare. Be productive now. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations. So this is now, we're coming out of Matthew 24, and now we're reversing it. They won't do this anymore. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come you. And let us walk in the light of the Lord. So they will now be humans with the Holy Spirit. We have been privileged. And the privilege is mind-blowing. We have been privileged to be first fruits. And we can say this now. So that we can be children of the resurrection. O church, come on. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.